You're listening to Some Pulp on Sunrise Robot. Find out how you can support us at sunriserobot.net slash support. Welcome to Some Pulp, Episode 10. I'm your host, Bruce Edwards, and I'm joined by Michael Edwards. Hello. Today we, uh, we examine the USR versus U.S. space race and the consequences for the geopolitics of the 1950s and early 1960s and some of the effects on culture and the arts. It all started with Sputnik, which was launched on October 4th, 1957. Yeah, so uh, in my mind, Sputnik was a satellite, but... I don't really understand like the context of what it was like to pick up a newspaper and be like, "Oh, Russia launched a satellite." So tell me, like, what was that feeling? Well, um, of course, uh, Eisenhower was was president, uh, nineteen fifty two, going forward, and, and was basically the, the the face of the government of of the U.S. for the next eight years, and. Uh, from what I recall, and you know, listening to my my dad and mom discuss this, and reading newspapers uh, later in the in the fifties, he, he was always assuring us that we were ahead of Russia, and that was important because Russia was becoming uh, becoming very malignant in in on the world stage. And although you know they had barely escaped from the ravages of World War II under Nazi you know, Germany aggression. You know, they themselves thought of them thought of themselves as as the heir apparent to world domination. But uh, uh, Ike and his cohorts in the government and in the military, you know, kept uh, assuring Americans that this is a placid era. We're in peacetime, and uh, you know the 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 placid fifties. Uh, the time of the, the the man in the gray flannel suit, which was an image of of uh, uh, the hardworking um, businessman figure, uh, and uh, and we could all just relax. And so when Sputniks got launched, you know, ahead of the, a planned uh, U.S. satellite launch, it was a shock. It just stirred everybody into thinking. Well, maybe our uh, engineering isn't so hot. Maybe our mathematics isn't so uh, up to date. Maybe, maybe the way we think about space is all wrong. So it kind of ignited a, a competition, and uh, um, in a way, it's it's sort of nice to have an enemy spurring you onward, <laughs> <laughs> just like the Beatles and the Beach Boys. <laughs> yeah, and so um, they didn't just launch a satellite, but it succeeded. Like it actually floated. It was visible in the sky. If you had a, a good telescope and knew where to look, um, so this propels the U.S. into a response of like, oh, we need to invest more. We need to, we need to find our way and beyond Sputnik and into doing more. So, what were the some of the milestones on that? Well, you know, they were America was was taking its time. It, it began to believe its own propaganda about about being ahead of of the Soviet Union, and and the Soviet Union was this plodding uh, uh, culture that uh, couldn't do anything very fast, and so on and so forth. And you know, the, we we couldn't have been more wrong. Although it, it's paradoxical because when we Got access to the Soviet Union through Glasnost in the you know, end of the eighties, and you know the the Iron Curtain came down, and the the Berlin Wall came down, and so forth. Is we we weren't too far off. It's that the the Russians didn't seem to know what they had, and so when, when Sputnik was a success, they didn't even know how to take advantage of it in terms of propaganda. And I, it was kind of amusing reading some of the accounts of the of the Soviets uh, not really being prepared. Uh, it's almost like they thought the Sputnik was was going to crash and burn, <laughs> but in fact it was it was quite uh, stirring and and, uh, and and like you said, you know, America had tangible evidence. You could see Sputnik uh, circumnavigating the, the the Earth, and uh, you know, and you know, as satellites go, it was it was a pretty you know, it was like uh, uh, fifty eight centimeters in diameter, but. 20, 23 inches. It's it's kind of it's described as a polished metal sphere with four <laughs> external radio antennas, 
And so, you know, something that most of us have advantage, take advantage of for uh, everything we do, you know, I mean, our car radios were, were, are now more powerful, you know, with uh, satellite radio than, than Sputnik ever was. But uh, it was a surprise launch. And I think it took our government by surprise, although they denied, you know, they always claimed the oh, CIA knew this was going to happen. Um, just like we, we, we were surprised by Pearl Harbor. Were we? I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Is it's this like an English major claiming they've read any book you mention. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, what I, what I think, uh, Sputnik immediately meant for American citizens and not scientists and, and not artists and so forth was it meant they're watching us. We're under surveillance. Yeah. And the Soviets are just around the corner. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the paranoia that the uh, uh, Fox, uh, the FX show uh, of the 80s that's presently, you know, uh, I mean, set in the 80s and, and presently uh, uh, on, on uh, FX, the, the, uh, the Americans, uh, the... Uh, uh, the the Russian spies who were who were inhabiting the country that that was fanciful that was uh, you know not not possible to the to the fifties imagination uh, and and made less credible uh, because you had Joseph McCarthy campaigning against communism relentlessly and and uh, creating scenarios and things that that uh, frankly at the at the time most people didn't think was uh, was was really credible and plausible, and of course, eventually, you know, McCarthy was censured and so on and so forth. But uh, the, the the Sputnik was real. I mean, it 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 really was going around yeah. you know, my block at a certain time of night. So you get this picture of sort of the national hysteria. Was there any flavor specific to the Midwest and and Akron and and Cleveland and kind of those corners? That you could speak to. I know uh, if Sputnik is fifty-seven, then you're you know four or five years five, old. Okay, uh, I mean, here's the way it played out. Um, uh, all of my family, my, my dad and my uh, uncles and uh, my my grandfather, they worked in industry. They were, you know, Akron is the rubber capital of the world, and so we produce all the all the tires for for really America. Uh, I mean, literally, we we weren't. Uh, uh, pushing off the production somewhere else in some other nation, we did all the work. And my dad uh, was a truck driver who delivered these tires. And uh, and and Cleveland and Pittsburgh, which which kind of envelop Akron on the on the map, and you know they were the steel capital. And uh, you know we have a team called the Pittsburgh Steelers because yeah. these are the, the 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 men and women who made steel into cars. And not just to the north of us, you know, in Detroit. And so we are really the industrial uh, capital of the world. And, and then eventually, you know, California gets involved in space uh, and uh, engineering, uh, you know, rockets and so on and so forth. And so you, you've got the West Coast involved with uh, an eye on the, on the stratosphere and, and other worlds. And you've got the, the everyday hardworking fella uh, who is trying to to now get ahead again, because suddenly you think we're behind the Soviet Union. We're behind in space. We're behind in rocketry. Uh, who, for all I know, they have a super rubber <laughs> <laughs> they've invented that will, uh, you know, outpace us uh, in our uh, in our automobile industry. And of course, what you find out is all the people in Russia and the and the uh, the uh, uh, Stalin and his crew—they want to buy American cars, and you know they populate, you know their their uh, uh, non-communist ideals with with uh, Chevrolets and uh, uh, Fords. So America tries to pull a response together, and they they try to launch the Vanguard um, TV three. Is that what this is? Yeah, yeah. And, and, so, and uh, how did that go? <laughs> well, not 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 so well uh, because. Uh, you know they 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 really needed more time to uh to answer the call even though they had been trying to buy time with this uh IGY this uh, uh I I love that that term uh, the uh the uh international geophysical year which was you know proposed uh at at a time when Sputnik just took all the headlines and and 
Uh, it was a joint venture between France and and the U.S. and uh, uh, the uh, the the launch you know wasn't as spectacular and wasn't as uh, uh, much of a, uh, a a triumph so that you know the rest of the world that had been saved by by the U.S. Uh, entry into World War II you know maybe you can't trust them and uh, that that was <laughs> this is uh, like a BlackBerry making their touchscreen phone after the iPhone you're kind of like yeah Meh. <laughs> yeah and. Uh, what what I uh, recall of the of the the late fifties since you know Sputnik gets gets our attention is uh, you know a kind of a, a depression on uh, uh, but a, but a, a renewal of interest in teaching our children well and you know giving them the math skills and the inventor skills and the uh, you know the the ability to uh, uh, launch. Ideas literally launch things, <laughs> and uh, you know, retrospectively, the early '60s were a, were, were a terrific time if you wanted to become a scientist because there was money poured into the military industrial complex, <laughs> and uh, all the all the money wasn't really going into schools; it was going into weapon development, and uh, and of course, that's what everybody thought Sputnik was. In fact, you know, it was just a a good radio transmitter, but uh, you know it, it didn't technically involve any threat. But it 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 was a you know the gauntlet was thrown down, and so uh, you find then not McCarthy's communism being feared, but communism's kind of pulled resources, or so we thought. Uh, yeah, and, and which, domino uh, theory and all that. Yeah, yeah, and, and which is what made uh, 1963 and in, in the in the Kennedy expansion of the war in Vietnam um, so plausible uh, if people thought about it because well we've got somebody in Cuba who has missiles pointed on us uh, pointed at us and and then you've got uh, uh, potentially Southeast Asia filled with Soviet aggression. And, and the tools of destruction and so forth. And so people started writing about it. People started, uh, you know, writing music about it. And, and so you, you have the whole culture sort of drenched in this sense of anxiety. And, you know, everybody is building a fallout shelter. We had, you know, uh, weekly and, and, and monthly drills in school. You know, what, what should happen and, uh, you know, as as if you know, we were naive enough to think, and this has been satirized by a, a documentary like the the Atomic Cafe, that's been you know widely viewed and and circulated in in American pop culture. You know, duck and cover. You know, if you if you see the blast, get under your desk. Of course, you know, we're going <laughs> to be dead. <laughs> we're going to be toast. So, well, I mean, some of what I'm hearing is that you know what kind of ignites the U.S. into investing in this and, and moving quickly is sort of that that other that that's ahead of you that's threatening you whether it's myth or reality and uh i almost want to connect it to the recent film interstellar because one of the big themes of that movie and i don't think there's any spoilers here but just in case if you haven't seen interstellar maybe skip this part um is uh kind of how do you circumvent the survival instinct of humans for our greater good and uh, you know, you could argue a lot of good things come, and we'll get into some of more of them, um, ARPANET and all that. Um, some of the good things that come of our fear of this other nation beating us, um, but there could be argued a lot of waste or a lot of weird investments or weird panicky decisions, and uh, you know, McCarthyism and all these other things that um, I think are safe to view as pretty negative moments, even though it's not all that's happening at the time. And I love that conversation in Interstellar. Um, Michael Caine's character is kind of philosophizing about how do you, like, we're good at saving the people we see, but how do you save the people beyond that? We're not good at that. And Matt Damon's character, like, ultimately emphasizes that completely because he cannot get past his local context. He only cares about himself. But anyway, it's neat to see some of the, um, connection to a space movie that explores that in a in a fictional setting. Yeah, we, well, when when you think about it uh, again, with with some retrospection, at least in my era of schooling and uh, expectation for what the world's going to be like ten years later or twenty years later, uh, 
we we've really uh, become much less interested in the kind of uh, space exploration and the technology that makes that possible. You could argue that the the discovery tragedy is is part of that, uh, but uh, you can see a counterthrust from some of these films like Interstellar and and apparently although we neither of us have seen it yet the Tomorrowland movie that's just out this this particular weekend uh, it, it attempts to revitalize a sense of of uh honor expectation of maybe there's there's no evil uh empire to to be uh forced into a competition uh, but uh, you know we we're, we're used now to comparing ourselves to Scandinavian nations, which have much better uh, mathematics scores, and in Finland in particular is the ideal, and that's close enough to the Soviet Union to be used as a prod <laughs> to our uh, to our particular uh, dilemmas of, of today. But you know we we've shifted to things like uh, climate change and uh, you know gluten. As a as a threat, those sorts of <laughs> of things that you know can kind of be handled uh, more than the Soviet threat seemed to be at that time, and and you know on, on top of, of the Sputnik success, you've got Yuri Gagarin, you know the Russian who goes into space before one of our guys, and uh, you know uh, he in order to, to to show some of the hysteria. Uh, you know, it, it was alleged at that time that Yuri Gagarin went up, that he went up in space and boasted, um, I've been up in space and I've looked around and I didn't see God. And so so the American press got a hold of that saying, see how deranged these people are, how they will bury us, like Khrushchev says. You know, it, it turns out that Yuri Gagarin was was a member of the Russian Orthodox Church, That that if he said anything close to that, it wasn't like, you know, God doesn't exist. It was more like you know, I I, I didn't see God's presence in in the universe, uh, which is a very different thing. You know, you can be dwarfed by the size of the universe. You can you know be overwhelmed by the grandeur of it and so on. But uh, you know, apparently this was a Nikita Nikita Khrushchev sort of line, which he used to to pound the American psyche, uh, using Yuri Gagarin as the as the uh, culprit when. You know, it, it's never been verified he said anything like that. <laughs> Just uh, different kinds of propaganda going around. Yeah, and and to be a member of the Russian Orthodox Church in 1961, in the face of the aggressive, anti, you know, atheistic philosophy of the Soviet Union, that's that's a pretty uh, uh, amazing thing for 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 you know Yuri to to agree to be associated with that and to understand the implications of it. Yeah. I don't know if he ever wrote an autobiography, but I'd read it if I could find it. You'd have to find someone to translate it, too, probably. Yeah. So, uh, you know, patriotism, whatever we might mean by that, you know, after World War II was at at an all-time high and a pride and a job well done and so forth, and you had many uh, hero stories in, in Hollywood, really, you know, between, and really before the war was even ended from in the early 40s, you know, these heroic people uh jimmy stewart for instance who was actually in the war as a, as a soldier and a pilot hollywood made hundreds and hundreds of these movies uh and some of them are quite quaint some of them are moving um but but once we get in the 50s you know as, as we discussed on a previous uh uh podcast it, it's it's all noir stuff it's all fear paranoia worries uh, a sense that we're not as as brave as we used to be. We're not as as smart as we used to be, and uh, the, the geopolitics of the era are are, are pretty uh, feral. They're they're really uh, you go looking for more enemies, and and I often think that the JFK got, got tricked into thinking Vietnam was a winnable war long before he ever looked at at the uh, the, the situ- situation. Uh, at hand, and you know, it was visible. It was the first televised war, and I think they thought there was going to be a a, you know, a quick settling of the matter. <laughs> much as you know, we don't we they always <laughs> whoever thought of this, uh, you know, whether it was Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever, you know, we'll 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 succeed where our brethren, the Soviet Union, 
couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> Afghanistan is the yeah. graveyard of how many armies? Um, Charlie, Charlie Wilson's war, you know? Um, I can't help but keep connecting this back to film because the, the history of film is, uh, in many ways, a nice way to draw out some themes of different decades in, in relation to space travel. And I'm wondering how we get to, I mean, I think we could talk about Dr. Strangelove a bit, which might be a nice little um, aside, but how do we get to 2001? Because um, you were just describing the 50s as full of a lot of fear and, and noir and paranoia. And um, 2001 is none of those things. Maybe Strangelove is satirizing it, but um, 2001 is like this, you know, there's a whole lot we could say about it. Um, but, you know, one of the most criticized parts of the films is the long, boring part of space stations and space travel <laughs> and video screens and all that. And uh, what strikes me about it in the context of this conversation is just how confidently normal space living was in the depiction of 2001. It wasn't about enemies. It wasn't about, it was just kind of like, oh, here's a picture of society with space travel being really normal and average and, and common. And uh, how do we get to that calm point? I think, uh, when, when was 2001 released? Well, I, uh, I think it was uh, 68. So it's, it's quite a bit later. And, uh, you know, of course, Kubrick is a contrarian anyway. And so he would have wanted the message to be not relax, but you know, like saner men and women will come along and solve this madness. Uh, although he did make The Shining too <laughs> later, <Right. laughs> but uh, yeah, two thousand one is remarkable for how it it uh, normalizes lots of things, including you know the product placement of the, the you know the the coke sequence, which I guess even here's a spoiler. You wouldn't expect, you know, that's the way Mad Mad Men sort of climaxes its run with, you know, buying the world of Coke and, uh, you know, uh, you know those, those pieces of 2001. I didn't see it when it came out in 1968. I didn't see it for several years later uh, when I went to, to to school in Florida and it was it was on a you know a separate bill, you know, a revival bill. But um, I, I did read. You know, recently that Kubrick was racing to get that finished and out because he wanted to beat Neil Armstrong <laughs> to setting foot on the moon, which he thought would uh, kind of cheapen or lessen the impact of the movie because uh, it's almost as if uh, uh, America thinks once we set foot on the moon, which which is a, a weird, when you think about it, at least to me, it was to me then as well, you know, JFK advocating that we put a man on the moon before the Soviets do. Um, you know, uh, in the sense of, you know, wanting to be the, the first man to, to, to uh, uh, you know, drive uh, a car in the salt flats of Utah a certain amount of, of uh, miles per hour or whatever, or break the sound barrier. This one just seems sort of strange, thinking that, you know, well, whoever gets to the moon first is going to, you know, set up rockets and set up, you know, further missiles and <laughs> and just really arm the moon. And, of course... Just everything's a risk board game. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if there were such discussions going on in the Soviet Union at the time, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, to me it would seem absurd. And, and of course, you, you have this... Uh, Nameless, faceless, but powerful, secretive society called the generals. The generals in the Soviet Union, the generals in, in the U.S. And, and they're, they're like all-powerful all uh, ventriloquists for the presidents who, who followed in succession. And, and, and uh, you have, uh, therefore, writers like, again, Rod Serling, my, my, my favorite uh, uh, 1960s uh, uh, playwright and, and teleplay writer, you know, shaping these narratives around this secretive group, um, whether it's the CIA or, or uh, you know, the military industrial complex. And, uh, you know, they're calling the shots. And, uh, you know, I think that's why Kubrick wants to show less of a military pretense yeah, more of a to, scientific to space mission. travel. Yeah, a scientific mission and a, and a, and a way to, uh, 
one way to normalize it was to, to was to show some some familiar products, you know, commercial products. You know, and there's not a long sequence with that, but it's just enough at the beginning of the movie, the first half hour, mm-hmm. to say, okay, we're we're in safe hands again. You know, there's 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 not somebody going to draft me and send me off to Southeast Asia and you know make me uh, kill somebody uh, or be killed. Well, that's Full Metal uh, Jacket. So yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just as as a series of sidebars that if 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 I keep thinking of them, I will loses both in the, in the <laughs> subject matter. But I just, I just fo- uh, found uh, in my archives a 20-page document I wrote as a conscious objector in 1969. And uh, it, it's, it's hard to believe how much paperwork you have to file, but I had to write essay-length um, ex- you know, excuses for why I didn't want to go into the Army uh, and uh, you know, much of it was not eloquent. It was just uh, you know, re- repeating a lot of cliches I thought at the time. That, for all I know, I borrowed from Neil Young, or uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, which which happens in 1970 in the uh, in the Kent State killings. But uh, but you know, there there had been in the early uh, 50s and, and later on in the, in the 50s. A series of movies that were about something other than what they're really about, and uh, uh, I, I remember when the first time, time I heard of this movie called Red Planet Mars, and, and saw the description of it, uh, I couldn't believe it. So I bought it. I bought about the uh, the DVD of it a couple of years ago, and then watched it. And it's hard for me to believe it was an anti-Soviet propaganda film made in Hollywood, in which. The discovery is made that the residents of Mars, the citizens of Mars, are fundamentalist Christians. <laughs> and you know, it sounds kind of absurd. It sounds kind of wacky, but um, you know that's that's what a, an anti-Soviet propaganda film. You know, and it had some some good effects. I mean, it wasn't like a cheaply made uh, movie, uh, <clears throat> and it had. Uh, 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 the famous actor from uh, Mission Impossible in it, Peter Graves, who's a scientist and uh, who who kind of brings the Soviet to 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 ruin from the revelation. And the Soviet Union is depicted in the movie as saying, "Oh no, those Christians got to Mars first. And of course, <laughs> it's not that; it's that they were already there, and we were the ones who came later. But uh, anyway, it's a fascinating. Uh, movie it's about seventy minutes long, and uh, but but it, it gives you a sense of of early in the fifties before there was any Sputnik or any kind of race to uh, to win. Uh, you know, it was a religious war, and uh, that's probably why Khrushchev was so in, in, intent on 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 uh, you know using uh, Yuri Gagarin as a, as this you know uh, proto atheist evangelist, but. Uh, you know, we we joke about uh, North Korea and and how uh, it reacted to the Sony film and uh, the interview. But in some ways, this was sort of preemptive on our part. <laughs> yeah. we, were, we were using you know Hollywood culture to uh, tell a story that uh, in any other era would not have been undertaken. Uh, and uh, you know, you know, the day the Earth stood still, which we've talked about previously, is the closest Hollywood ever got to a very subtle kind of Christian apologetic. Because his name is John Carpenter, his initials are J.C. <laughs> He's initially, uh, uh, you know, shot and maybe killed, but you know, Gort brings him back to life. There's a resurrection scene, that sort of stuff. But it, uh, it is much more uh, blatant in this uh, Red Planet Mars. But uh, but but what happens is uh, the narrative is not Soviets versus uh, Americans. It it becomes our own generals trying to get us into war, and and so you see that theme played out on, on in TV uh, teleplays right. and in uh, well, with the uh, Doctor Strange Love, for instance, right? That you mentioned and uh, that one. So when does the anti-war movement really get rolling? Is that more Vietnam? Well, right, yeah, I would definitely say it's uh, it's 1963 and, and and later, and because you know it becomes the very thing that makes it impossible for LBJ to 
return as president. You know, he, he got elected because he would keep us out of nuclear war. And then he got convinced he shouldn't run for reelection because of the Vietnam War. So you, you, you know, he, he was in a, a position that, you know, championing civil rights and, and having triumphs in, in that, uh, that, that couldn't save him as president from the, the, the ongoing futility of the Vietnam War, uh, which, which became, you know, a, almost a, a universal patriotic dilemma. And so, uh, you know, the Green Berets were a popular film in the 1960, in 1965. There was a song called The Ballad of the Green Berets in 1965, which apparently was the only single ever to reach number one that was entirely uh, on the volume of sales to Americans and particularly white Americans over 55. <laughs> they just... <laughs> And it's not a very good song, and it's not <laughs> singable. It's not. It's not the sort of patriotic song like "Over There" that George M. Cohan wrote for World War One. It's a. Uh, it's it's a just a weird time. Yeah. Uh, so, what happened to America's kind of enthusiasm, and whether out of fear or out of um, exceptionalism or some weird swirl of all of it? Um, wh- there are some things happening more recently um, in the past, you know, five years or so, um, with with space and NASA and and all that. But you know, what happens after the '60s? Why why do why does America kind of slow down and stop caring about space? Well, you know, people like Gene Roddenberry had had opinions about that, and and uh, his initial run of Star Trek, which was 1963, which is is kind of an amazing pivotal year. Look, I can say the word pivotal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where because Aldous you know, Huxley died, uh, well, <laughs> he he was he was much less about space than <laughs> I know. Uh, I'm just than, uh, yeah. <laughs> the um, to, to me the era and you know NBC uh, took a chance and then didn't didn't stay with it, but but they you know they they were in uh, sort of an open network. Uh, at that time, for for adventuresome plots and, and stories like like Star Trek brought to us, and uh, I always thought NBC was the news channel to watch for coverage of space events. Uh, and I remember uh, Frank McGee was my favorite newsman, and he was oh, he was the science editor of NBC, and he would always explain the intricacies of of rockets and. And uh, if they don't make this turn at this point, they're going to explode in space. And, you know, <laughs> this was before the discovery. But uh, uh, so the adventure of space uh, sort of it, it, it loses its its hold on the American imagination. I mean, from the 50s forward, the one, the one champion of space is Walt Disney, and he has... The theme parks to prove it, uh, and you know his his enthusiasm led him to uh, develop some really intricate animation in the in the late fifties. You know, let's say at least partly to sell Disneyland and Disney World eventually, but also because he thought that that kept the the public imagination uh, in in building space stations and looking to Mars as as the the future. Uh, you know, planet to reach for. I mean, when you get there, who really cares about the moon? But <laughs> Jupiter, Saturn, I mean, those are interesting. Yeah. And even poor old Pluto that's no longer a planet, <laughs> demoted, uh, with no vote that I got to cast. I- improperly promoted, maybe, originally. <laughs> Could be. Um, Could be. Yeah, I mean, when I think of this Disney video, Man in Space, or some of the other the other aspects of Disney that were... were Pushing space, um, I, it's really obvious to me now. In the in the first Iron Man movie, the first new Iron Man movie, I don't know if there were earlier ones, um, the John Favreau one, um, when they have his dad in these retro videos, kind of presenting like the world of the future. Like, is that just straight up Walt Disney? Like right there. You know, uh, now that I know more about Walt Disney, I, I think so. And uh, of course, now Disney owns the Marvel franchises that are controlling that <laughs> narrative, except for Spider-Man and maybe X-Men. 
but uh yeah i i yeah. I think that uh you know y- you want to come to a point where space travel is a possibility and it's uh taken seriously and not just a cartoon or not just a you know a science fictional but you know it's always been the case i think that uh you know from Jules Verne forward uh and hg wells forward and even you know i'll throw in cs lewis who also did his uh cosmic space trilogy uh there's there's a, a desire to find out what's out there and to find out what's out there you don't want to just send unmanned vehicles and you don't want to send dogs and monkeys up in space in fact that at a certain point becomes kind of cruel and you know the soviets uh, before they sent up gagarin uh, sent up layla the, the 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 dog they wrote a song about her but she died in space uh, you know sadly uh, i think oxygen levels or whatever they hadn't planned for and she couldn't tell them right. so uh uh but but you want there to be a uh something going on in your culture that doesn't at least prohibit space. And so the civilian space effort, you know, that's intriguing, even if it's not been very successful. And some recent launches have been, in fact, very discouraging, Yeah, uh, you know, with casualties. And uh, But uh, there's a certain point at which the narrative isn't owned by anybody. And so we have an international space station now where, uh, where Russians or they're more than Russians, the, the former Soviet Union and, and, and people from across the expanse of the former Soviet Union, um, you know, they get along, they, <laughs> they cooperate. And so that is a success story, obviously. But uh, the, the fact that we're not going to apparently budget anything to build on that. Yeah. Uh, one isn't uh, a, I think Ted Cruz is in charge of our, our space, you know, in Congress, at least the space oversight. And I think he pretty much wants to shut NASA down. So, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if he'll find the political capital, but it doesn't seem like Americans care too much about space anymore. We don't not care. Like we're not like actively trying to end it, but, um, there has been a shift where the private sectors had to kind of push for it. You know, Elon Musk and, SpaceX and all this stuff, and uh, and you you have the the science cheerleaders like uh, uh, Bill Nye and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson um, trying to t- trying to give a story to science again, trying to you know raise the imagination of the public to to make them want to support these things, and not just space, but science in general. They're they're trying to be storytellers for science, and um, it seems like they're they're sort of some of the public spokesmen these days trying to rile up that enthusiasm. And uh, Elon Musk is more just like, oh, I'm a businessman and an inventor, and maybe he's more like a Tesla or an Edison um, trying to invent invent it. He's not so much the, the, the charlatan that convinces you to want it. But Well, see, see I think there, there are two narratives one could seize upon if, if you wanted to revive that or, or beginning to... Uh, uh, dramatize it is one is the the search for extra uh, extraterrestrial life it seems to me that's of interest both to believers and non-believers um either either because you want to prove that there's a superior species that is responsible for whatever progress we've made as a species or lack thereof well that that's a theme again c.s lewis took up and and, and of course what, what what he decided to do was was to to make mars Interesting and and theologically relevant, uh, and uh, and 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 hope to bring uh, space the the space narrative and the space travel narrative in particular uh, something worth trying, and 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 he believed as you know many others who who uh, were not Oxford professors of medieval and Renaissance literature, uh, you know, try to invigorate the search for life. And uh, and you know Jules Verne does that inside the Earth and outside <laughs> the Earth, and and you know tries to find every every potential means of exploration. So, you know Captain Nemo uh, uh, and uh, the uh, first men in the moon that H. G. Wells gives us, it, it it all is satisfying, and uh, and and we but we don't have that energy. Uh, and I don't think either Bill Nye or Neil deGrasse 
Tyson have it either because they, they have a, a foot in both worlds and perhaps lack the uh, the gravitas. You know, if there was still a you know a, a Carl Sagan uh, to do it, uh, you know, he, he was much more <laughs> capable of, of crafting that story, that narrative than than whoever, whoever we have left at this yeah. point. Um, and you know, and the other other thing is we we seem to be kind of trapped now in a narrative because of the Middle East strife. It's almost like uh, a, a barbarian society versus a scientific society, and and we're 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 trapped in in uh, we don't we don't have a, a that that adventurous spirit uh, that you know the uh, the early. Um, uh, Arabic nations, you know, gave us a, you know, a great mathematical system to figure out all these things, and and it's it's sort of you know been uh, been buried in in part of a a cultural uh, clash that you know doesn't give us the, the the mental freedom and the adventurous spirit to yeah. to uh, feed. Well, maybe it's just another example of um, once you scale beyond family and and small city units, people are really struggle to care or humanize people at a large scale. And so it's easy to make super quick assumptions about an entire nation, an entire part of the world, an entire religion, whatever, all of this, um, because there's no chance you're going to meet those people individually and find out that there's a huge variety of people everywhere. And uh, you really, I mean, yeah, there's trends in demographics, but there's also... Um, ethnography and, and um, the, the the insider perspective on all this. Yeah, and, and uh, you know all this because of Sputnik, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean I, the, the the one movie that stands out to me that uh, it appeared that everybody in America saw uh, it, it was called "The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming," and it was one of these uh, Hollywood specialties. A movie so long that there had to be an intermission. So the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Gone with the wind, uh, and uh, but it's it's about a, a Soviet submarine that gets stuck in in Massachusetts Bay, and you have this 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 sort of little story that becomes a big story. Uh, you know, during the time that uh, uh, the, the the sub is is sort of anchored, uh, you have these townspeople. You know they're going to save America, and they're going to they're going to fight with us. And and the, the one of the Russian guys gets gets off of the sub, and you know ends up falling in love like an Elvis character might. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, it, it, detente is sort of in the air, and and suddenly uh, this comedy, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. You know, brings the temperature down a little bit, uh, and uh, and it, it seems like at least. The, the the Americans making movies at the time uh, thought that a, a comedy would would you know even if the, if the Russians don't laugh very much we can laugh we can laugh at ourselves we can laugh at them and uh, it's it's the way to uh, uh, make the enemy a little more human a little less threatening uh, and uh, uh, and I, I remember seeing that with my dad and because Jonathan Winters was in it he was going to like it no matter mm. what. And uh, Jonathan plays the, uh, uh, the 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 townsperson who rallies everybody, like like the uh, the people in Frankenstein who get their uh, brooms and and their pitchforks and, <laughs> and run to the house, and and he's going to defeat this Soviet uh, submarine with with the the uh, artifacts of farming and and. Uh, Street cleaning. So just a, a random note. I I didn't realize that Jonathan Winters lived until 2013. He was 87. <laughs> I, I thought he yeah. had died a long time ago, but no, not at all. No, no. He uh, he almost outlived Robin Williams. Yeah. You know, I one of the, one of the things about uh, Sputnik, uh, in some ways, it's, it's it's more symbolic than it was. You know, any actual benefit it it paid. Uh, other than during the propaganda war of of who's who's really in 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 the lead uh, for the uh, space race, um, is it, it it's sort of uh, I, I think ushered in this this era of uh, 
popular songwriting that took objects like Sputnik and made them into popular hit songs, even though they were instrumentals. And uh, you know, there was a there's a, a series of songs written about Sputnik, uh, mostly in Europe, but you know they made their way across the, the Atlantic. But then uh, the the satellite that that the the sort of allies got behind was one called Telstar, and Telstar became like a five million single hit. Uh, you know, after it came out, it was 1962, uh, and it's sort of this wistful reliance on a satellite to save us sort of feel to it. <laughs> and it was a reassuring sort of instrumental, uh, you know, completely guitar-driven, a lot of percussion. Uh, you know, maybe we can even, you know, insert a, a little bit of, the, of this song sure. uh, so we can get a flavor of it. It had this space age ethereal sound to it, uh, and you know, Sputnik ushers in not only some some musical currents, but uh, even things like like fonts and and the way, the typography of of the era, uh, you know. And uh, yeah, I've been reading recently about uh, you know the the so called space age. Uh, uh, topography used in children's books, and you know, uh, you know, the Jetsons, which we've mentioned before, kind of takes advantage of that. And if you look at the uh, the uh, different episodes, and even how the the names, the directors, the the voices in the in the closing credits, are, you know, have this space age feel to them. Um, and it, so it's, it's interesting to me that space rock. You know, it has this guitar-driven quasi before you could really have synthesizer music, but you have a, a kind of synthesizer, and uh, you know, it, it it has an effect on the emotions of people that somehow makes them somehow assured that things are going to work out okay because space will save us, or or the or the or the science, you know, yeah, uh, you know, Tang, you know, which which still exists in grocery stores. Even though it's 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 really miserable as as something to drink, it's not orange juice. It's orange flavored powder that mixes with water, and yet it's the space age drink. And it was billed, it was sold in stores as the space age drink. And what is that supposed to mean exactly? Except this vague sense that you know space is out there and we'll reach it someday, yeah. and and it'll solve the problem of diseases, but we're starting with Tang because that's what the astronauts drink <laughs> in space. Starting with Tang. Um, so this would be, you know, early forms. It could be Pink Floyd or uh, even Jimi Hendrix is given some credit with some of the space songs. And uh, I mean, is this just another example of, you know, having something to refer to beyond yourself is just kind of a, you know the human need, and if you're not religious, then you find other metaphors to to be beyond yourself. And space just had that much mystery to it that you could you could say, yeah, space, whatever that is, is going to save us, or is going to, you know, get us somewhere new, or any of these things. Yeah, and and you too sort of has uh, adapted or adopted some of that. In uh, you know, pe- people have, have uh, interviewed. Uh, uh, Bono and and he has some of that kind of space age language or that those dreams uh, which he's applied not only to space or derived from space to apply to uh, sort of healing Africa and you know feeding Africa and and curing Africa and and all of those things that were in the sixties uh, not about uh, human need and and solving human problems but but was you know on the other side of that that launch that that rocket that's going to go up because it's going to get a closer get, get us closer to that discovery or that species and uh so uh you know a number of, of rock groups yeah uh, i also think david bowie you could place into yes, this for sure exactly um and you know even to go a little more modern the flaming lips i think are right in this category right. 
Um, a little bit of Radiohead. Um, they're they're way more the alienation angle. We're alone, <laughs> or we're 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 there's there is no hope here. <laughs> but um, things are so messed up. Um, I'd say even Elton John's Rocket Man yeah. stirs me. <laughs> there was a, uh, I guess, forgettable film. Uh, although uh, you know a lot of people liked it, October Sky, which which came out uh, in the. Uh, uh, well, late late nineties, early two thousand. I, I haven't looked this up recently, but uh, it was uh, based on a book called Rocket Boys by uh, Homer Hickam, who was a, you know, I think a West Virginian miner's son who was encouraged by uh, his excited imagination to become a, uh, you know, a, for lack of a better term, space scientist. For all that 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 <laughs> meant to him, uh, but he was inspired. He says. Uh, by Sputnik to uh, to desire to for America, you know, and for the U.S. to to, to be a patriotic designer of of rockets, and uh, you know, actually got in trouble in his youth for <laughs> setting up these rockets all over his his little <laughs> town. But uh, uh, you know, I uh, I remember a, a phrase uh, I think spawned by a. Uh, an episode of Twilight Zone, uh, keep watching the skies. And that had a double meaning. It, one was keep watching the skies because you may need to head directly to your uh, underground station uh, that you've been building in your backyard for the last five years. Um, but it also meant keep watching the skies because um, the invaders from Mars or the explorers from Mars, different yeah, very different vibe. Di- different, different uh, implication there. Either we're about to be overtaken by the Martians who need our fill in the blank. They need our trees. You know, they need our water. They need our atmosphere. Or look, there's the explorers from Mars. They're here to assure us that they're benevolent and they've been watching us for years and they're getting a little nervous about those nuclear weapons, but they can show us how to avoid nuclear. And, and those those two themes, I remember thinking, I like the one about keep watching the skies because our friends will be coming soon. Uh, and not so much the destructive one. <laughs> yeah. Well, with that, you have uh, episode 10 of Some Pulp. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye.